Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Jarrett with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Before we get to that, I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for all your support that you give this podcast. I'd also like to thank the sponsors, uh, Wilderness Athlete, Western Hunter, and Elk Hunter Magazines, Phonescope.com, Outdoorsman's, Utah Hydrographics, and our title sponsor from the beginning, GoHunt.com Insider. Uh, without those sponsors, I wouldn't be able to put the amount of time that I do into this podcast, and I just want to thank them for their uh, monetary support. Uh, I also want to encourage you guys to support these companies. These are all great companies, and within this podcast, you'll hear promo codes uh, using the J. Scott promo code with each of these companies. I encourage you to call them. I encourage you to talk to them, email them. Uh, send them messages and uh, use those uh, promo codes and uh, just uh, I, I really appreciate the uh, feedback that I get from you guys all the time. Uh, different guys saying they use Wilderness Athlete products, uh, different emails saying uh, how much they love the Wilderness or excuse me the Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines and I get emails from guys saying you know phone scope adapters how much they like them and outdoorsmans and you know, getting stuff dipped at Utah Hydrographics. Uh, so uh, please send me those emails. I appreciate all of the support that you guys give me. You can email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, this podcast uh, continues to gain momentum and support and a couple hundred thousand downloads per month. And we're just rolling along here and we're going to have a big summer. I know everybody's getting prepared for upcoming fall hunts. Uh, I'm going to be getting ready for guided hunts as well as uh, I drew the archery elk permit in Utah and uh, going to be getting in shape and going to be getting uh, getting a new bow and, and uh, sh- doing a lot of shooting uh, and just getting prepared uh, so that I can be ready uh, for my hunt and I know you guys are too. Uh, you guys can follow along our adventures on Instagram at jscottoutdoors, my associate Dar Colburn at Dar Colburn. Also on our website, our guiding website, colburnandscottoutfitters.com. Uh, you can also go to jscottoutdoors.com uh, on our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. Uh, we've got, uh, I believe, 2,700 and, and change uh, subscribers. Uh, every day we're getting new subscribers on our YouTube channel and uh, we're constantly updating the, the YouTube videos there. So check us out, J. Scott Outdoors on YouTube. And let's get right to this episode with Jarrett from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Jarrett Babinsack of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And I'm excited to have Jarrett on to talk about some of the issues facing sportsmen uh, on our public lands here in Arizona and across uh, the western U.S. and across the United States for that matter. Uh, Jarrett, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Jay. How about you? Good. I'm excited to have you on and uh, talk about some of the issues that that we have going on and talk about backcountry hunters and anglers. Uh, Before we get into that, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your background uh, where you grew up, and, and how you became a sportsman. Certainly, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So I grew up in 
Northwest Indiana. I uh, didn't move away from Indiana until after college. Hunting and fishing was still a big part of the culture. The community that I grew up in was um, still fairly rural uh, at the time that we lived there. My dad was a hunter. Um, my grandfather, my uncles all fished, some hunted. My neighbors all hunted and fished. So it was really just a big part of my childhood. So, you know, coming up, it was just a natural way of life. When, you know, deer season rolled around, everyone went to the woods. We hunted for our food and we fished all summer. And that was just part of my childhood. So it was, you know, as natural as, as breathing or going to school or playing baseball as a kid. So just part of my life. And my first love, I would say, was, was whitetail hunting. I started when I was 12. I picked up a bow the next year and just fell in love with archery and uh, self-identify, I guess you could say, as a bow hunter. And that's really my, my biggest passion is you know, outside of my wife and my kids is bow hunting. So from the time I was 13, that was my first year with a bow in my hand. Um, until now, that was that was my passion and love for the outdoors was spending time in the woods with my bow. So that's that's a little bit a little bit about me and kind of how I got started. As you were growing up and bow hunting, what was it about bow hunting that you think captivated you so much? I guess I would probably say it's the same reason that I love hunting public land and, and doing, you know, kind of solo adventure hunting. It's the, kind of the challenge and the the solitude of it and the adventure of it. It's really, you know, you and that weapon and, and the sport of archery is, you know, it's, it's challenging in that it forces you to, you know, to master it. And if there's any type of, you know, internal clutter in your head or you're not focused or, you know, your form's not right, it's going to show in the flight of that arrow. And I think I just fell in love with the challenge of it. I just, I liked watching the flight of the arrow. It felt natural to me and just enjoyed it. Growing up, did you have pretty good ground to hunt on and did you have, high interactions with animals or was it a low low target environment and uh not a high success rate area no i you know growing up it's funny i was just thinking about this the other day and, and talking to a friend of mine it was pretty utopian actually we, we had hundreds and hundreds i know it doesn't sound to a, a western public land hunter hundreds and hundreds it doesn't sound like a big number but when you're growing up it's in, in Indiana, hundreds and hundreds of acres was a lot for us. We had we had access to a lot of land, and it wasn't difficult to obtain that access. We were able to knock on a farmer's door, offer to give a pan during the summer. And, you know, you had access to acreage, or you knew someone who had a farm. My aunt owned a farm um, that had great habitat and uh, and quality deer on it. So we we never lacked for places to hunt um, as a kid and. You know, and, and there were a lot of interactions and a lot of animals. And and then as as I got older and became high school age and then into college and, and now, especially looking back at um, that same area, there isn't that kind of habitat and there isn't that kind of access. And um, it's much more difficult to hunt, you know, back across the Midwest and the East in my home state of Indiana. It's, um, it's troubling. Growing up, did you have opportunities to shoot does and bucks, or um, how how did do their seasons work? As far as do they have specific doe seasons, specific buck seasons, or is it you know archery specific or rifle specific? How does it work? 
Yeah, so a ton of opportunities to shoot animals of, of either sex. Um, the way that it works, so I moved back to Indiana, oh, four or five years ago and, and spent some time there for, for, I think we were back in Indiana for four years and moved to Colorado and then back here to Arizona. And when we were back, uh, most recently, I think if, so I had property to hunt in two counties and if I had maxed out my opportunity between antlerless and antler deer, I believe I could have shot 12, 12 deer that year. So there's, there's definitely a population issue. Um, and that, that loss of access to quality habitat to hunt has really driven the antlerless population and some of this overcrowding around urban areas where, you know, humans are butting up against these once natural wild habitat is, you know, really creating major issues. So it's, it's tough to, to keep up with the population there. I think if, if you're a hunter, especially a bow hunter, you, you really never run out of opportunity to chase animals. And then as you transition to, you know, growing up hunting in the Midwest, hunting Indiana for deer, um, then at some point in time, I believe you moved to Montana, um, did you not? Or at least you moved out west. And what was the shock? Was there quite a bit of shock in moving out west and seeing all of the public lands that were available to hunt? And I'm just curious about your take on that. Yeah, so as a kid, we took really one one trip out west, and it was to Montana, and we went through the Dakotas, and my brother and I spent quite a bit on that time ditching the rest of the group of my family, and, and we picked up some fly rods, and we went out and we hiked back into some different creeks and rivers to fish. And that was really my first time being exposed to these huge wide open spaces. Um, and in that moment, I knew that at some point I wanted to get back out West. I wanted to live out West. And coincidentally during that same time period, that's really when, at least to my recollection, I started to really notice the change in, you know, my home state of Indiana as things became subdivided in places where, you know, I remember field dressing my first year, you know, watching the field edge with my dad as a kid. Those areas now when I would go home from school were houses and developments or, you know, limits or they were being leased to, to someone from Chicago or Michigan that had, you know, more money, uh, more resources than I did. And and I just, I fell in love with the, the big wide open spaces and the access and the opportunity and the sense of public ownership of of the Western U.S. And, and so I knew at that point, once I got out of school, if I had the opportunity, I was going to move out West. And so that opportunity didn't come until quite a bit later, um, but in 2006, we moved to Arizona for work, and, you know, I just, I fell in love with it. We traveled all over the state. I don't think that we spent a single weekend uh, here in the valley. We were camping and fishing, and we had, you know, had to move back for work purposes back to Indiana, and in 2009, we moved back there. And it's even worse now than it was then. The, I think every acre of land that I had access to as a kid, including, you know, probably for me, 
the most influential piece of property and the most special place to me, my my aunt's farm where I spent the majority of my time as a kid, it, it's all gone. Um, it's, it's it's either been privatized um, by someone who doesn't allow hunting or it's been subdivided or developed. Um, but, you know, that's hundreds or probably even into the thousands of acres that, that I hunted as a kid um, where I became a hunter and became passionate about the outdoors that just doesn't exist anymore. And so we we had the opportunity to move back out west uh, a few years later. We moved to Colorado for a year, actually, and really fell in love with hunting wilderness and, and the challenge of going at it alone and going into the backcountry solo. And, you know, now here living in Arizona, it's the same thing. I have so much access to so much opportunity that as a kid growing up in Indiana would have been unfathomable as a kid. What kind of hunts do you enjoy here in Arizona uh, the most? Like, what are your favorite types of hunts that you've done? So, this was really my first year being able to to get out and chase critters. So, when we lived here the first time, I was working full-time, and we were starting a family, and I was going to grad school. And so, the, the number of hours I was able to actually spend outside chasing animals was pretty small so moving back we moved back oh about a year and a half ago to Arizona and I'd say this last this last fall chasing coos deer or cows deer I'll say it the right way chasing cows deer was was a real treat and spending time in that country um you know it's unlike anything else that I'd ever hunted before and we spent I spent a lot of time down in southeast Arizona um, with some fellow members of BHA and some of our, our chapter leadership teams showing me kind of around and showing me the ropes when it comes to hunting, hunting whitetail. I'd say that's, that was probably my favorite hunt from this past year. I haven't been fortunate enough to draw an elk tag, but if I do, I'm, I'm looking forward to chasing some elk here on my home turf as well. Absolutely. Coos deer, cows deer, however you <laughs> want to pronounce it. Cows is, is correct. Yeah, uh, I know. But I, I say coos, Dar says coos, all the buddies I hunt with say coos, so whatever, coos, cows, um, they're unbelievable deer. I think what makes the deer so unbelievable, too, is some of the country that they live in, from, you know, Ocotillo Flats, no you question. know, da- down in the cactus, you know, all the way up, you know, the yellow grass, the oak trees, the mesquite, all the way up into the pines, and um, pretty pretty neat and unique uh, little deer, quote-unquote, um, but pretty fascinating in their own right with uh, their behavior. And uh, one question I would ask you, being a Midwest hunter growing up and then getting to observe uh, the coos deer, um, what similarities do you see in the deer that you grew up loving and, and these deer here in Arizona? A lot, actually. And, and maybe that's part of the reason why fell in love with it so quickly this fall was because it, you know, gave me that warm fuzzy feeling of chasing whitetails back home and, and rekindled that a little bit. But I think that the rut behavior, especially where I, I spent a few days out in January during the rut and the rut behavior was very similar. They responded to the calls and they behaved much the same way that the deer did back home. So I, I thought that was familiar. The, obviously, the looks of the critters are, are fairly familiar, but the country they live in and the amount of glassing and patience that goes into it, the amount of ground that you cover with your eyes, 
is certainly different than the type of hunting that I did back home where, you know, some of the trees pants, you'd be hunting and you'd be lucky if you could see a couple hundred yards in each direction. Um, seeing in some of these big open vistas and this beautiful country down in southeast Arizona, um, it's pretty remarkable. It's really pretty country. For sure. And were you able to encounter uh, the other game animal in southern Arizona that everybody likes, and that's the uh, javelina? That was. I uh, went out in February. Um, unfortunately, I injured my, my shoulder this year and, and tore the labrum in my shoulder and sprained my AC joint. So I wasn't able to hunt with my bow. So I took my, my lever action 4570 out and in a few days was able to uh, to kill a javelina and it was that was my first time hunting javelina and it was a blast yeah they're pretty neat little animals for sure and um they in their own right have their own uh you know unique characteristics and areas that they like to live in and and for people that haven't hunt them hunted them they're in my mind way more than just a little pig they they they're just a really cool animal and they're very bow hunting friendly it's you know, if, if you're going to take people out sometime on a, you know, a first hunt, uh, certainly a javelina is, is uh, you know, a great hunt for that because you're usually in some pretty neat country. Uh, usually you see quite a few of them and, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty stockable without the, you know, they don't have incredible eyesight. They've got great noses, um, but uh, just a fun animal to bow hunt. Let's take a quick break here and then I want to dive into... Um, BHA. GoHunt.com Insider is by far the most valuable tool a Western hunter could give themselves. They are the industry leader and number one source for Western hunting for a lot of reasons. They have changed the game for how hunts and hunting information is found. Within a matter of minutes using filtering 2.0, you will be able to filter by state, species, residency, odds of drawing a tag, specific hunting dates, and harvest success percentages to find the hunts that fit exactly what you're looking for. If you are a guy that applies across the West or just in your home state but want to find some new opportunity, there's no better way to do it than using GoHunt.com Insider. As an exclusive offer to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast listeners, if you sign up for an Insider membership and use the J. Scott promo code at checkout, you'll receive a $50 gift card to Kuyu to use towards whatever you would like. Head on over to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and get yourself the most valuable membership a hunter could have. Since 1982, the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix has made it their goal to provide the very best customer service combined with the latest and greatest optics and accessories in the business. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods and mounting accessories for any hunter's optical needs. Go to Outdoorsman's.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off all Outdoorsman's packs and pack accessories. Jarrett, uh, I want to transition into uh, who and what is BHA. So, BHA, and, I, and I guess I should say, I'm sorry to interrupt you. BHA is Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Go ahead. We we see ourselves as the sportsman's voice for our, our wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. That's kind of our mantra, mission statement. We're a, a grassroots organization, very member driven. Um, 
and we're, we're a public lands advocacy group. So we were started on a fire in 2004 in Oregon by a group of sportsmen. And the impetus really was at that point in time, there wasn't another organization working on behalf of public land hunters, especially when it came to national and state policy. And so in that moment, they decided that um, on the landscape, there, there needed to be an organization because we were underrepresented when it came, you know, to those important policy decisions that were either being made at the state level or in Washington. We really didn't have um, anyone advocating on our behalf to make sure that voice was being heard when those discussions were being. So that was that was really the the start of of BHA as an organization, and and today we work on. Um, very similar things, and, and if I had to put it into a couple of buckets, it would be access and opportunity would be um, a primary um, thing that we work on. The second thing would be conservation habitat, and that's really around policy and, and protecting and preserving special places and place-based conservation. And then the third bucket would be fair chase, um, which I think everyone would agree is a is something that we need to be mindful of, especially as technology and things um, continue to, you know, pervade the landscape and pervade hunting. That we that we kind of self-police and self-monitor that a little bit to make sure that the hunting and fishing heritage that all of those that came before us and the people that are doing it now have worked so hard to to protect that that you know perpetuates into the future. So BHA is a membership-driven organization, or how, how does it work? It is a membership urban organization. So we're a 501c3. Um, we have members in all 50 states in the U.S. We're probably not, um, we're, we're really stronger from a, there's no surprise because the majority of our public land, um, and the majority of public land hunters reside out west. And we have a very active, engaged um, and accountable uh, membership base. We have a lot of influential sportsmen uh, among our membership, Steve Renella, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, Hal Herring, um, and many you know prominent corporate partners as well, you know, Under Armour, Kimber, Leopold, Weatherby, Vortex Optics, Sonics Maps. Um, a lot of people that value public land hunting, um, both for you know business and for their own um, personal interest, value the work that we're doing. They see the importance and the kind of work that we're doing, um, and they step up to support us. Let's talk about um, access and opportunity and where BHA is stepping in and making a difference in regards to access and opportunity. This uh, this really takes place on two levels. So you have the bigger picture policy things that happen Um you know, at a federal level, um, like the Land and Water Conservation Fund or, you know, different sportsmen and conservation um, pieces of legislation at the federal level. And so that we want to make sure that we're um, actively involved in those processes and that the public land hunter and fisherman has a voice in those discussions. And then at the state and local level, place-based conservation where, you know, we're, we're working with our membership. Our membership is really integral in, in identifying these potential threats or opportunities to protect these places 
And so then we work um, through our local chapters and our membership to try to protect um, special places or, or work together with other user groups to come up with multiple use plans that protect the, those places um, while still serving the interest of everyone that's at that table. So we, we really want to be that voice for for discussion and compromise when it comes to trying to figure out the, the best course of action, the best plans to protect these places. Isn't one of the challenges with an organization like BHA and other conservation organizations is that Sportsmen are somewhat fractured and, you know, while I may be a member of Trout Unlimited and a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, at times those two organizations or other organizations as well are not in agreement with each other. And so I, I would think, uh, you know, trying to gather everybody together for a common goal or a common good is at, at times challenging. I was wondering if you could speak to that. <laughs> yeah, that's probably an understatement, huh? So, yeah, there, there are there are a lot of organizations, um, whether that's you know the animal-based organizations, some of what you just mentioned. There's other organizations working on just a multitude of topics, but I would say that there are a few issues and a few areas of common ground that are, are really pretty galvanizing, and the biggest one among those being the public lands issue and the and the the public lands transfer or public land grab issue right now. BHA is a member of the Arizona Sportsman for Wildlife Conservation with uh, multiple uh, user groups, multiple 501c3 organizations that, that all belong. And we just had a meeting here recently. And that issue in particular is something that's galvanizing. So why we might split hairs over some of the how, what, and why of you know, hunting when it comes to public land and it comes to some of these bigger issues like habitat, I think that's where we do our best work. And I think that's where people kind of put their swords away or put their agendas away. And we can all come together to make sure that the best interest, the future of our sport is, is being represented and protected. So I would say yes on some of the, maybe some of the more topical things or some of the the more nuanced discussions on, on the fringe, but when you're talking about these bigger issues that are imperative to all of us, I would say sportsmen in general do a pretty good job of coming together, and you, you see that through the history of conservation. When the real threats arise and when someone's coming for something that we all hold near and dear, we group together pretty quick and we group together pretty strongly. I know in the um, debates, the presidential debates, uh, on both sides, Republican and Democrat, there's been talk about, you know, making public land or federal land and giving it over to the states and letting the states manage the public lands as opposed to the federal government. And I was curious as to uh, your take and, and or BHA's take on that issue and maybe if you could kind of talk about both sides of the issue and for the listeners out there that aren't aware of what's going on. Yeah, sure thing. Um, yeah, obviously very topical right now. And looking at it from, from my vantage point and probably I would say if you, if you pulled our 
team at BHA from everyone's vantage point, this is this is the number one threat right now is is the public land grab movement. And so when I look at this as a U.S. citizen, we're all public landowners. We all own these public lands. It's I, I think one of our greatest birthrights as Americans is these huge tracts of public land that we all have the ability and opportunity to recreate on, whether that's hunting and fishing or you know, mountain bikes or using ROHVs or whatever it is, we have these big, huge, wide-open tracts of land. Um, you don't see that anywhere else, really. And so when I look at this discussion, I look at it from the standpoint of we're all public landowners. Um, and so what, what, what the folks that are on the side of, quote-unquote, giving it back to the state, I guess first to address that piece of it, it was never owned by the state. So at statehood, each one of these states was given X number of parcels of land, and those lands were designated as state trust lands, and those state trust lands were to be used to raise money for the public school system. So if you look at, whether it's here in Arizona or really any state across the West, if you look at the state trust land website or their mission statement, it's in their bylaws. Uh, the, the number one purpose of those state trust lands is to raise money for the state trust land coffers. So it's highest monetary benefit. When you look at public lands, which are public lands are lands that are owned by all of us, held in, in trust and managed by a variety of federal agencies, whether that's National Forest, BLM, et cetera, those lands are mandated to be managed for multiple use which means we all have a seat at that table and our voices are all important and those lands belong to all of us. They don't belong to one special interest group. And so the the proponents of this land transfer have done a really nice job of trying to frame the discussion in federal versus state. And obviously in the current political climate, federal is going to become a, a dirty word. So people hear federal versus state and the first inclination is to say, well, yeah, of course it's better if it's managed at the state. It's the state's closer to it. The people here on the ground can manage it better. We have a better idea of what needs to take place. And in theory, that might be true. But what we're really talking about here is, is two different types of land. If, if that federal land is transferred to state ownership, it's not public land anymore. It's state land. And as I just said, state land has to be managed for highest monetary benefit. So if that land has to be high, managed for highest monetary benefit and it's no longer managed for multiple use, who's to say what happens to that land? First, we no longer have a seat at the table. As sportsmen, our voices are moved. We're, we're not part of those discussions anymore. And if you went to the Arizona State Trust Land website right now, for example, and really any state, I was looking at a field list yesterday and just looked at the uh, sale and auction uh, listings, you can see just how much of that state land is is it's being sold off. I'd say if you look across the West, Nevada is a great example. They started with, I think, about 3 million acres of, of state land. And right now, they retain 3,000 acres of that original 3 million that they were given at statehood. So they've sold. Not in, Ari not in Arizona, yeah, but in other states. This, is, this right. is Nevada, yeah. Right. So that's just kind of a cautionary tale of what can happen when when states control what happens to that, that land. You know, the beauty of the, the public land system 
that we all have a say. Um, it can't just be sold. It can't be managed for one special use without there being some discussion around um, that management plan. You know, those are those are all negotiated. They're all negotiated transparently. Whereas when the state owns the land, it's a completely different story. And so, so one question I would have, one question I would have with that is I, I've, I've heard both sides of the argument, but one of the interesting things is, is it possible? And, and I'm just asking the question, is it possible for the feds to give the land back to the states, but not in the same capacity as quote unquote state land? which I'm looking here at the website and it has the, you know, the specific reasons uh, for the state land. Um, Is it possible that they could give it back to the states, but in a capacity that it is public lands, it is not the same as state lands and that these lands are never to be sold off. I know the argument on both sides. And I think the other side would argue that once it becomes state land, that then eventually they'll worm their way in whoever's the, you know whoever that is but whoever that is is going to worm their way in and eventually try and make those parcels for sale right um but but you know maybe a happy medium would be if there was a way cuz i believe that someone from washington dc does not know anything about land in arizona but that's why they create the BLM and the Forest Service and other federal mandated, you know, agencies that are here on the ground and, you know, I think doing a pretty good job of managing our public lands. Um, but, you know, maybe a, a happy middle ground would be somehow that the feds could give the land over uh, to the states, but make it where it was, you know, public land. I think one of the challenges with that is, in my mind, doesn't someone in Iowa or someone in Tennessee or someone in Florida own the, the federal land in Arizona just as much as someone that lives in Arizona? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. Yeah, you follow so what I'm a, saying? I mean, it's a, public, so everybody owns it. Yeah, that's a lot of questions. So let's um, let's let's kind of start with the could it be potentially transferred to the state of Arizona, let's say, or, or any state in the West to be managed better locally? I, I suppose in theory it could. The problem that I see with it today is that that's not what's being asked for or politicked for, whatever word you want to use. Right now what's being asked for is an outright transfer. And you said something kind of earlier in the question, and when I hear this, it kind of gets my hackles up a little bit with the idea of giving it back. Um, the states never owned this land. This is never their land to begin with. This was always to be held in public trust, and, and this goes to the point you were making about doesn't the guy in Iowa or Tennessee have just as much a sense of ownership or shit, you have just as much a sense of ownership of, you know, maybe an acre in the Pine Mountain Wilderness here here in Arizona, I think absolutely, and, and yeah, that's yeah, that that's how I feel about it. I think that's how everybody should feel about it. But unfortunately, I think that's not how everybody feels about it, and I think that's why ideas like this transfer of of land to state ownership is able to gain traction out east, and it's able to gain traction in Washington, or it's able to gain traction with with people in Texas. 
because they don't have this sense of ownership. And maybe it's because they haven't used it the same way that we have. They don't have this deep emotional, sentimental connection to it. It doesn't provide food for them and their family. It doesn't, you know, provide land for them to graze. It doesn't do these things for their, you know, for their personal or, or professional sense of well-being or their, their lifestyle that it does for all of us who live in the West or the people that live in the East and, and recreate in the West and come out West and, and love these places the same way that we do. So to, I guess to go back to your, your, your first question about could that potentially be an option? Yeah. I've heard actually one, one person talk about that more middle of the ground approach. I was listening to another podcast and it was, uh, uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name off the top of my head, but it was, uh, someone running for governor in the state of Montana, not the city governor, but someone um, looking to, to run for governor. And he offered the idea of, can we figure out a way where these lands are, you know, the deed isn't transferred, ownership remains the same, but we have better plans to manage them, um, utilizing more input from the, the folks on the ground. And I would say, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And I think more conversation needs to take place, not just around sportsman's issues, but in general, in the middle, I think, as a society, um, we become very polarized. It's, you know, you're either with me or against me, or either on this far side of this idea or this far side of either yes or no, where, you know, that's not where compromise takes place. That's not where the best answers come from. It's usually when, when people can sit down, check their egos, and have, you know, intelligent, nuanced conversation around compromise and around how do we best do this. The problem that I see right now, again, is that's not what's being asked for. What the folks that are, that are, on the, the side of proposing these land transfers, they're not interested in better land management. They're interested in monetizing. And when the, if the land was, say, was to be managed better via some type of, of better management between the feds and the state, that ultimately doesn't serve the purpose. If you look at, and I hate to say this, but it kind of always goes back to follow the buck or follow the dollar. If you look at the money that's financing the, the proponent of the public lands transfer, it's 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 big money. It's the Koch brothers and their ilk. It's it's people that only benefit if this reaches its its end, and that end being the eventual sale of these lands. If, if they're never liquidated, they have really no vested interest. They certainly don't have a vested interest in making sure that it's managed for better multiple use of folks like you and I, you know, they benefit when that land gets sold. So, you know, their pot of gold at the end of this rainbow is it's transferred to the state. Right now, the federal agencies can't afford to manage it because their budgets are being starved, um, whether that's through lack of financing or the fact that they're responsible for fire suppression and, you know, no secret looking across the West every summer that, it, you know, there's lots of stuff burns and that's a huge cost. And so, dollars that are earmarked for road maintenance or trail maintenance or habitat management or prescribed burns or whatever vehicle to, to better manage these lands, that money gets shoot up pretty quick when a fire starts. And so if, if the land was to be transferred to the state, those problems don't just disappear. They come with it. And so now they become the state's issue. And when you look at the financial um picture 
across a lot of these states, it becomes clear pretty quick. And several objective third-party um, economists who are a lot brighter in this particular area than me have concluded the same thing, and that's the states can't afford it. So that land gets transferred. Now it's the state's responsibility. The state's sitting there with this land with the same problems that it had before they got it. They can't afford to manage it. Then what happens to it? Well, it gets sold. And when it gets sold, we all lose. I mean, once that land's sold, and this is coming from personal experience as someone who grew up in Indiana and watched a lot of places that I held near and dear to me and that, you know, helped frame who I became as a as a sportsman disappear. That that you can't go back from that. So if, if those lands are transferred and eventually sold, that's a, a no-win proposition for all of us, and it's you know something we cannot do. Yeah, it's all all good points. Uh, let's take a quick break here. Utah Hydrographics is in the water transfer printing service and they are open to whatever you can dream up. Choose from a wide range of camel patterns, designs, and colors. Whether it's guns, bows, tools, rifle stocks, vehicles, steering wheels, fenders, dashboards, paint guns, fishing rods, cups, tripods, watches, knife grips, helmets for a local sports team or for your motorcycle, picture frames, mailbox, animal skulls, you name it, they can probably do it. Utah Hydrographics loves taking things that are general looking and turns them into something that looks fantastic and eye-popping. Give them a call and see what they can do for you and receive up to a 10% discount by using the J. Scott 16 promo code. Visit them at utahhydrographics.com or on Instagram at utahhydrographics. Whether you are interested in elk, deer, antelope, bighorn sheep, or moose, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines will bring the adventure to your mailbox. These publications feature articles on the finest hunting gear, tips and tactics from experienced hunters, field judging trophies, glassing techniques, calling strategies, and much more. To become a more knowledgeable and skilled hunter, subscribe today. Go to westernhunter.net forward slash jscott and enter your email address for a chance to win a $1,500 credit towards any Swarovski product. Jarrett, uh... In talking about public lands and these lands being held in public trust, um, is there one group or another that has more right to public land than the other? No, and I think that's the beauty of it, right? So it's to be managed for multiple use, and so that land's there for all of us. And I think where where the right answer comes in how these lands are managed, again, it goes back to having good, intelligent, nuanced discussion where you bring everybody who has a vested interest in that land, you sit down at the table, and you figure it out. And so we've been involved in numerous um, discussions or numerous planning sessions like this where we sat down with OHC users and with mountain bikers and ranchers and we all sit down and we decide okay maybe it's not going to be ultimately the ideal outcome for anybody but it's going to be an outcome that's better than the alternative and something that works for everyone at the table and i think that's where that's where the future of conservation is and that's the kind of work that needs to be done um 
going forward. So the long-winded answer to your question, no, I don't think anyone has more more right to a particular piece of land than anybody else. Wasn't there a while back the OHVs, um, there was some huge issues with the OHVs and, you know, how much ground they were just driving over and creating new roads and, and, and that whole issue just blew up. And I think from that, um, I had heard some rumblings that BHA was an environmental group and that was, you know, it all of a sudden turned into you know, us against them and what have you, and I would just ask you to comment on that. Sure. So, so I'll ask you a question. So, you're a hunter. Do you, do you get irritated or do you take exception to someone who poaches being prosecuted or being held accountable for their actions? Uh, the question is, do do I say it again? So, do you, would you take exception? Let's say a guy goes out and, and poaches an elk, and that person's prosecuted, that person's held accountable for his actions. Is that something that that offends you as a hunter? No, I I think they should absolutely, if if they're breaking the law, then they should face the law head on, and and they should be prosecuted. Right. So I and, and I consider that person a poacher. You know, he broke the law. And so the thing that, that has always kind of baffled me about the, the OHVs or the OHV conversation in particular is that, okay, yeah, so the guy poaches, he gets prosecuted. Obviously, as a hunter, you're not offended by that because that guy's not a hunter, he's a poacher. OHV users, I, kind of, I look at this the same way. I've used OHVs. I have a, a Jeep Wrangler that I take to the trailhead, but I don't drive down the trail. I park it at the trailhead. So... As an OHV user, if someone doesn't abide by the laws and they're not playing the game by the rules and they disregard that trail sign and they maybe drive down a creek bed or into some, you know, elk habitat, let's say, and that person's caught and they're prosecuted as a legal, responsible OHV user, I don't see where I would be offended. And... BHA's position, we're not anti-OHV, we're not anti-four-wheel drive. Every one of us has a four-wheel drive vehicle. A lot of us own OHVs. So our issue is with that illegal use, and that's it. So we're proponents of legal OHV use. The reason that is is because of the habitat destruction, loss of opportunity, um, the impact to the wildlife in those areas that had illegal OHV use. Yeah, it's all you know. I mean, that's that, that's it. That's a huge issue. And you said you know you had read about it a while back. I would say this is an ongoing issue across the West. Jarrett, what other issues do you see uh, that are a you know a problem, quote unquote, for sportsmen and for public land owners that are going on right now? Well, I think we were talking about one of them, and that's the responsible OHV use piece of it. I think the the OHVs, um, much like some some of the new technology, has become pretty pervasive. And I think there's a place for for a lot of this, but I think it comes down to self policing and making sure that we're that we're always behaving on you know in the best interest of the habitat of the animals so i think you know when you look at the ohv piece we're just talking about you look at the 
the ramifications of irresponsible or illegal OHV use if you look at animal security and the impact to clean water, the habitat destruction, um, you know, those are big issues. And I think it's something that we can have a very positive impact on if we do that right. Um, the second thing would be the public lands piece. Um, as sportsmen, we're, a lot of us are, are necessarily the most outgoing people by nature. We like to, you know, do it ourselves. We like to, that solitude, we like, I mean, that's the reason that we gravitate to being outside, right? So coming together and trying to get a group of divergent opinions or people that might not necessarily gravitate to working in a group um, is, is a hurdle for us. And I think we need to do a better job bringing those people together, bringing our, our, um, the hunters and anglers together and getting everyone to work against common causes, against these, these big issues where, you know, where we all can find common ground. I think the public lands one is a big one, especially if you're coming into the election season. It's, you know, it's a, it's incumbent upon all of us to understand what's at stake here and where, each one of the uh, the politicians that we're thinking about voting for, where they stand on these issues, because you know it's not just going to impact us; it's going to impact our kids and in you know future generations. So I think those are that's probably another big opportunity for us is to figure out ways to come together and work, even when it's maybe not necessarily the easiest thing to do. For sure. Do you think that uh, BHA's stance on public lands is keep public lands public? You're not necessarily talking, or BHA is not necessarily talking about private land that's already private, that is not public, it's not state, it's private land. Is BHA's stance in any way that that should not be private land and that should be public land? Because I think, in a way, sometimes um, backcountry hunters and anglers get a quote-unquote bad rap for you know, trying to come across that people that own a ranch, so to speak, that's, you know, totally deeded private acreage, that backcountry hunters and anglers want to make that public because that should be public. I, I just curious to hear, you know, your take on private land that, that, you know, a family five generations has owned and, and how that is, you know, I, I, I've kind of heard scuttle before and people getting all fired up about, you know, this ranch or that ranch that is private land. I'm curious what BHA's take is on private land and, and you know, are they trying to make those lands public? No, interesting, Jay. I really hadn't heard this before you and I talked and um, absolutely not. Um, we're a proponent of of, you know, private owners, um, land rights. We have a number of our members are ranchers, private landowners. Um, when we were talking earlier, I didn't set foot on a piece of public land until, you know, pushing 30 years old. So I, you know, my entire, you know, youth and early adulthood growing up as a hunter was all on, on private land. And I still hunt quite a bit on private land. So no, we're not proposing or, um, lobbying for any public, uh, or, you know, we're not, we're not trying to private. Yeah. yeah. We're, yeah. I don't know. 
we're not trying to undo the privatization. I'm not really sure how to say that, but no, we're not we're not advocating that we need to um, make private lands public lands, or that somehow private land is the boogeyman or is a bad thing. That that that's not it at all. Um, and I think you know this isn't really our wheelhouse, but groups like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, you know, there's groups there that that work with these landowners if they want to establish conservation easements or they want to protect these private lands in perpetuity, whether that's for um, historical purposes, they want to make sure these lands, you know, stay ranches in perpetuity or that these lands are managed for, you know, as public land for access and opportunity for, for hunters and anglers. You know, there's groups out there working with conservation-minded private landowners um, to help them do those things, and I'm certainly a proponent of that. And we're all proponents of that type of activity when a private landowner wants to take that initiative themselves. But if they're a private landowner, you know, we're, we respect the rights of private landowners. Most of our, a lot of us are private landowners. Where our, you know, where our wheelhouse is, is advocating on behalf of, of public landowners and trying to keep public lands in public hands. Um, we, we take the view to an earlier part of our conversation that we're all public landowners that each and every one of us in this country owns these public lands and it's special to who we are as Americans and and we believe that that deserves our best efforts to protect and and perpetuate that into the future and that really has nothing to do with you know stepping on the rights of private landowners or, or trying to turn private land into public land that's never been part of our that's never been part of our um history it's not something that we've ever done and not something that we'll be doing in the future. Have you guys heard about PhoneScope? PhoneScope is a privately held company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. Take digiscoping photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. PhoneScope is the future of digiscoping. Get yours now. Use the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at Phonescope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com, or on Instagram, at Phonescope. Wilderness Athlete is committed to improving the health and quality of life for the outdoor athlete by providing field-tested, scientifically validated nutrition and sports performance products. Check them out at wildernessathlete.com and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any order. I think one of the things that I think about when these issues come up and we talk about public land and then we talk about who gets to use the land, one of the things that scares me a little bit is, and I'm curious how BHA would handle this, is, you know, as our country gets more, you know, non-hunters, non-sportsmen, you know, not using those public lands and, you know, more people move into the cities and, you know, the more population in the cities, it seems like they end up, uh, you know, making the rules and, you know, trying to enforce the rules and they've never spent any time out on public lands. Uh, You know, the challenge that I think we'll face sometime, you know, whether it's, you know, 50 years from now or 100 years from now is when uh, the groups that don't hunt or against hunting or against fishing, against sportsmen, 
decide that the public lands and that hunting and fishing, uh, you know, one particular group of users, sportsmen, shouldn't be allowed to do that on the public lands. And I'm curious what BHA's stance would be uh, on that. And I think I think it's a challenge. I think it's an issue that we're all going to face sometime, whether it's in your and I's lifetime or you know our you know our future's lifetime, uh, our kids' lifetime. Uh, you know when a you know strong advocate of anti-hunting becomes so powerful that they say you know no more hunting and fishing on public lands. Um, you know we could all be in trouble because uh, you know the the BLM and the Forest Service and the people that manage the public lands right now have kind of their own rules and regulations at times, and they butt heads with you know different users of the land. Um, just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, and it's obviously changing population dynamics, you know, the urbanization of the United States, and it's, it is definitely um, an issue that we all have to be mindful of and something that we need to be paying attention to. And I've heard others talk about this in various um, forums about, you know, defensible spaces for for hunters and, you know, the, the different um, – They've, they've pulled these the non-hunters or the and the really more, mostly non-hunters, but you know and anti-hunters as well about their their feelings on hunting. And when you talk about hunting for meat, um, it's overwhelmingly positive. The, the non-hunting public supports that. They think that's a great idea. When you start to get into some of the other practices that are maybe more on the fringe of who we are as hunting and fishing, then. It, becomes a little bit, you know, they become less supportive because they don't understand it. Um, and I think, you know, really from a big picture perspective, we've, we've lost our way, um, you know, as a society when it comes to our connection with our food. And so that urbanization, um, the going to the supermarket to pick up a piece of, you know, cellophane wrapped meat for dinner, um, they're so far removed from how that meat ended up on their plate or ended up in their shopping cart. Whereas those of us that, that choose to participate in the circle of life that, you know, choose to go out and hunt and fish and provide for our families and take a more active participant role in that process, we're connected to it. So I think, you know, success for us in the future lies in how do we bridge that gap? How do we reestablish that connection to our food? And I think if we can reestablish that connection to our food, we'll we'll do a better job of keeping those folks that live in these urban environments that maybe don't ever have any, you know, any desire to get into to hunting or fishing. If they can see that connection to food and they can understand the connection to food and they can understand our um, reasons for hunting and the rationale behind it and the motivations behind it, then I think we'll do a better job of keeping those people in our camp. Um, you know, when you look at some of the, the crazy stuff that, that came out over like the Cecil the Lion stuff or some of these other things where everyone was just up in arms over an animal being killed by a, you know, a, a, a hunter that we were pretty far at that point removed from the, the food conversation. And so 
when people can't make that direct correlation to our motives and when they start to question the motives, that's when people get turned off to the idea of shooting and killing an animal. When they can see that connection to to food, then they can see the connection to our motivations. Our motivations are very clear, and we do a good job of articulating our motivations. I think we do a good job of keeping those people in our camp. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, fair chase. Um, that is the third proponent that, you know, the, in, in the quote-unquote mission statement, uh, fair chase. And what are some issues that, that you see as, um, you know, under the fair chase? What things have backcountry hunters and anglers as a group tried to um, mitigate or, you know, get rid of or oversee and make sure that things don't get out of control? Yeah, so probably the most um, recent example would be drones. And that's something that we've worked on. And I believe we have um, drones now banned for the use of hunting and scouting, I think, in, in eight or nine states now. And that's really been... Uh, us working directly with our membership, with state organizations, with Game and Fish, um, to propose and, and put into place some, you know, common sense rules around around using, you know, using drones. I think um, high fence hunting is is another thing that we've that we work on in another area where we feel um, that you know that crosses into something that that no one would really consider fair chase and. In this conversation, something we could probably talk a whole hour on because, you know, when you start to get into some stuff where it might be more regional or it might be kind of more on the fence where it's personal preference, you know, it can can become heated and it become really personal and opinions can become really divergent really fast. And in those things, it's not really what what we're talking about. We're talking about those obvious fair chase. Um issues. We're talking about the things that potentially represent a threat to, you know, the future of hunting and angling. And so, you know, the two I just mentioned are are high on our list and something that we're going to keep working against. Gotcha. And um, how do people um, join and find out more about backcountry hunters and anglers? So you can find us pretty much on any social media platform. You can go to our website, um, what I would encourage, if you're interested in getting involved with backcountry hunters and anglers, that you connect with someone um, in your local state. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're really membership driven. We're a very grassroots organization. Uh, we have a lot of different, you know, whether it's a happy hour or events taking place, there is money in the state. Um, a lot of the, the good work that we're doing is happening uh, on the ground. So if you are interested in getting involved with BHA, find us on one of those channels, send us a message on Facebook, reach out to us through our website, um, but try to get connected with someone that works in your state. We've got great volunteer chapter leaders that would love to get you involved. Um, so yeah, I mean, just take the initiative, reach out for us, and we will make sure to hook you up with the right person in your home state and, and get you engaged in what we've got going on. How many states uh, would you say, you know, do you have, uh, gr- you know, local groups or in each state? Uh, do you have all 50 states yet? Or No, we don't have chapters in all 50 states yet. I think we're hovering around the 17 or 18 mark. But the thing that we've seen 
recently is we've just seen an explosion in growth um, with, you know, with our membership, BHA, and not just in the West, but across the East. So we have a chapter in Minnesota now, and we're doing great work on protecting the boundary waters there currently. We have budding chapters in Wisconsin and Michigan. We have growing membership in Texas, and actually spent time on the phone with three or four guys from Texas last week who want to start a chapter. That, that state has uh, less public land than any other state in the uh, in the United States. So, around this public lands issue in particular, has been has been galvanizing for people, and it's it's drawing people to BHA. But across the West is traditionally where we've been strongest. Um, but we're we're growing across the board right now. So if you're you know, sitting in the East listening to this podcast. We need your help there, too. Um, you know, and the same thing out here in the West. We definitely can use your help. And on Facebook, you're under Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, you, I believe you also have an Instagram account. And what's the website? So it's backcountryhunters.org is our website. Okay. Okay. And are you the uh, head person here in Arizona? Yes, I'm the chapter coordinator for Arizona, um, Nevada, Utah, and New Mexico. And then we have a, another guy, Ty Stubblefield, who's the chapter coordinator um, for the rest of it. And then, you know, we've got uh, a whole team of folks working on, you know, BHA's behalf in our headquarters in Missoula, Montana. Gotcha. Well, I I really appreciate you being on. Um, are there any things that you think we didn't cover in this podcast that you want to make sure listeners know and and hear? No, I think we covered a pretty a pretty wide gamut. Uh, the, the thing maybe the the parting thought I would be really one with is you know now's our time to to get involved and to step up and make sure that our hunting and fishing heritage and our public land hunting heritage is seen protected not just you know for our own use here in our lifetimes but for future generations it's this stuff isn't new there's always threats on the horizon or or ongoing and the guys that came before us left us with this public land uh hunting and fishing heritage and they left us with these opportunities and i think we owe it to you know i i i got involved because i feel like i owe it to my daughters and i want this to be around for them and for their kids and so i would say if you've been on the sideline, maybe you're just paying your dues to whether it's BHA or, or any organization. Um, get involved. You know, we need more hunters and fishermen to take an active role in the process. It's, it's, you know, maybe not fun. It's, you know, bureaucratic and it's messy and, and it can seem daunting and overwhelming at times. So we need more people to step up um, and, and lend a hand, you know, their strength in numbers, obviously. And, and now's our time as, there's hundreds of fishermen to step up and, and, and do the, the work in the trenches, do the dirty work to make sure that this is around for future generations. Awesome stuff there, Jared. I appreciate you coming on and covering some of these issues. And like you said, they're not easy. Uh, it gets a little messy at times, but someone's got to do it. And uh appreciate uh, an organization like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and guys like yourself that are willing to donate their time and you know, fight for public lands and fight for what we love. And uh, hats off to you. I appreciate you uh, 
coming on. Do you have anything this uh, spring? Are you going turkey hunting? Are you having any fishing trip? Anything you're looking forward to? Or um, have you applied? What's what's going on in that arena? Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Actually, I'm looking forward to this summer and to next fall. Hopefully, if I'm lucky enough to draw some pads. Um, so coming up here, I'm going to take my daughter turkey hunting for the first time, and then I'm going to do some turkey hunting myself. Um, and then we've got a family vacation planned up along the Boundary Waters area in northern Minnesota with uh, my wife's uh, family and extended family. We're going to take our kids up there for a few weeks. We'll be heading to the uh, Compton Traditional uh, Bow Hunters Rendezvous in, uh, in Michigan in between here and our, our trip up north. And then I've got got my applications in for Arizona, obviously. I'm hoping to draw an elk tag this year. And then I, I put in um, for, for elk in uh, Colorado as well. And if I don't draw, I'll be back in Colorado with an over-the-counter archery tag one way or the other. Right on. And, and you said something about a bow hunter's rendezvous. Doesn't backcountry hunters and anglers usually have a rendezvous type thing in the summer? Great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay. Um, our rendezvous is actually coming up next week. It's April 1, 2, 3. It's in Missoula, Montana. We do it every year. Um, and this year has been overwhelming. We're already sold out for our Saturday banquet. Uh, we have a brew fest on Friday night. Where we have um, 23 Montana-only breweries, 46 different beers, a couple of cideries. We have our our keynote speaker for our banquet on Saturday is uh, Steve Nardella of Meat Eater fame, and we're glad to have him there again. Uh, Randy Newberg has given a seminar. Um, just a, a great group of folks that's all get together in the name of conservation and, and protecting our public lands and, uh, and habitat. And so that, yeah, that takes place next week, and I'm pretty excited to be heading out there for that. Awesome. We'll enjoy it and uh, keep up the great work, like I said, and uh, thanks for coming on. All right, I appreciate it. All right, take care.